When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very, very, very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. Well, why? Because we haven't done one in months? Like a month and a half, maybe. Month and a half? I don't even know. I think our last episode was on Dune. Yeah, it was Dune. That was like a universe of time ago. Yeah. Especially parents with a soon-to-be one-year-old. That That's like a whole developmental leap for your child. I don't think Arthur was walking back when we did Dune, and now he seems like he's been walking forever. We had to ingest a whole lot of spice in order to time travel to this exact moment where we're doing our next podcast. And here we are doing one. So Midnight Myth listeners, I know you have all been clamoring for more juicy, fun, intellectual, nerdy, geeky Midnight Myth content. Thank you for your patience. It has been a very strange time in our lives, as I'm sure it is for everyone. It is almost Christmas of 2021. Sadly, COVID cases are on the rise again. It seems globally there's a new variant It seems bleak. The days are very dark, both literally and metaphorically, as we are in the heart of the darkest time of the year. But it is also a moment to pause and reflect as we get halfway out of the dark and we start thinking, how can we celebrate this year? What is unique? What is great about this year what we can look back and we can be with family safely if you are fully vaccinated and boosted, please. But find some joy in these darkest of dark times. And is there no better holiday that represents what we are going through collectively, globally, than the Christmas holiday? It is a holiday that is about recognizing winter, recognizing where we are at in our seasons and recognizing that there is always a turn back towards the sun, that it is only cold temporarily. It will be warm again. And with that spirit, with that air, with that meditation in mind, we bring to you our Charlie Brown Christmas Midnight Myth episode. Yay! And if you've been listening to us for a long time, you know that when we say Christmas holiday, we're speaking from an inclusive perspective because Derek and I do not identify as Christians per se. We are not particularly religious people. I know I was raised Unitarian and mostly like neo-pagan. And Derek, you know, between the two of us, we have embraced kind of our pagan roots in the last few years. But when we speak about Christmas and the winter holidays, we're speaking from that kind of secular, pagan-ish bent. 
And reflecting on all of the winter holidays, all of the solstice celebrations and rituals that have been celebrated across the world throughout time, and that meditation on what it means to be in the darkest part of the year and to embrace what light you can achieve as a people, as a community, or as an individual. And also, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that I personally love to meditate on the question, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? And today, we get to answer that question, or at least try to answer that question through the Christmas special that brought that question first to life, Charlie Brown Christmas. I absolutely 100% love it. I have a ton to say about this Christmas special, done a good bit of research, as much as I could cram into the insane busy schedule that is my life and your life as well. And I don't want to waste too much time with preamble, but it's been a while since I've been able to say this. Laurel, do your thing. Yeah. So our thing is that we would love to hear from you. We are all over social media, especially Twitter at The Midnight Myth. That's one of the best places you can reach us. You can also find us on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. You can find us on the World Wide Web at MidnightMyth.com. And that will also send you to our Patreon and our merch store. I cannot promise that if you order merch, it will get there in time for Christmas at this point. But maybe for Easter, maybe grab a, a onesie for your baby for everything Midnight Myth and Wheel of Ka, our Dark Tower side podcast. And the very best thing you can do for the podcast is to leave us a rating or a review, especially on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. So if you enjoy, please drop us five stars or just drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. Lovely. Without further ado, shall we do the briefest of brief recaps? Yeah. Charlie Brown Christmas originally aired as a TV special in 1965. Yeah. So it, it is a old one. And in it features the popular characters from the Peanuts comics named after the main character, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown finds himself depressed with his best friend Linus, not realizing or not feeling the holiday cheer and looking around and seeing Christmas being commercialized, being turned into toys and lights and contests. And he finds himself disconnected from the joy that all the other kids seem to be feeling. This prompts him to go visit the local psychologist slash child Lucy, who charges him a nickel to try to diagnose his fears. Realizing that the problem isn't that Charlie Brown has a fear of Christmas, she recommends that he gets involved, that he does something that might connect him to the greater Christmas spirit, and she asks him to direct the Christmas pageant. There he goes to the Christmas pageant, finding all of the children, including his trusted dog Snoopy, really just wanting to play music and dance and not really interested in this piece of art he's trying to create, which should explore the true meaning of Christmas. He says many times, and at this point, quite loudly, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? This is when Linus goes into, and he quotes a quote, a verse from the Bible, Luke 2, uh, verse 8, chapter 14, in which he says that Christmas is truly actually about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. Realizing that the pageant needs a tree, Charlie goes and tries to find the best Christmas tree. While shopping for the Christmas trees, they're all aluminum and plastic and metal, and all of these feel very fake to Charlie Brown. And so he finds this one small little wimpy tree. That's the only real actual tree left in the tree Christmas tree store. He brings this back to the pageant all of the fellow um, pageant goers, the fellow Peanuts char characters, lament and berate Charlie Brown for picking such a poor tree. Having Charlie Brown realizing he has failed the pageant, he is so disconnected from Christmas, he decides to go home, where he finds that his dog Snoopy won first place in the Christmas-like contest by decorating his uh, doghouse quite ostentatiously, covered in lights and things like that, Charlie Brown, realizing that even his dog has sold out, leaves that poor tree, realizing the tree really stinks, and he goes inside to be by himself. The fellow children actually follow Charlie Brown, realizing they haven't been nice or fair to him. When they see the tree, they decide maybe they could spruce it up. They take all of the lights and ornaments from Snoopy's doghouse. They decorate the tree, and it turns out all the tree needed was a little bit of love. 
Now that it is a beautiful Christmas tree, they start caroling Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Charlie Brown, reconnected to the spirit of Christmas, comes out and carols with them. And that's the special. Oh, the end. That's pretty much the whole that's thing. That's the whole thing. That was actually the the entire length of the special, your brief your briefest recap. Yeah. The one thing I didn't mention is uh Lucy and oh, what's the piano player peanut character? Schroeder. Schroeder have a fun little scene where she's bullying him into playing jingle bells, and that's pretty funny. But other than that, that's the whole thing. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for that recap, Derek. Absolutely. Well, As we are wont to do here in The Midnight Myth, this special came out in 1965. I first saw it as a little boy, as I'm sure my parents saw that when they were kids as well. So it's something that has passed on generationally. We're going to show it to Arthur as well. He watched it with us. However, you know, he's not even one, so he's not going to remember it. But this does beg the question, does this Christmas special hold up to the intense, thick, nostalgia glasses that we all have for it. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the nostalgia glasses because I think that is a huge aspect of why we continue to watch it. It was a big hit when it was released in 1965, even though producers did not think it was going to be a big hit. It was the first peanut special that was animated uh, and then it became a holiday tradition. And I think a huge part of why we continue to watch it is because it's tradition, because let's be honest, it's weird like it's it's very sweet and it is very nostalgic and it takes you down memory lane and the soundtrack by the Vince Guaraldi trio is iconic of Christmas now it is truly so so good and then there's amazing comedy too like i think Lucy in particular has some zingers that are really incredible talking about how she gets lots of toys or a bike every year, but that's not what she really wants. What she really wants is real estate. I think that's genius. And I think there's a lot of that that continues to make me laugh even as an adult. But then it swerves into this really hard left and quotes a Bible verse. And so there's a lot about it that even as a kid, I was like, really? This is this is what this special is doing? So I don't know if I can really say that the special holds up. I think it has tons of issues, but those nostalgia glasses continue to make it this warm, you know, Christmas medicine for me. What do you think? It had been such a long time since I had sat and watched it, and I had only memories of it as a kid and how much I loved it. And I do think it is a Christmas classic. I think it is going to sustain itself generationally, not to be the Grinch, but in no way does this hold up. Yeah, right? In no way is this, um, let me try to really frame my thoughts here because I don't want to tear down something that I personally love and I know all the listeners love. I mean, the reason we're covering it is because we love it, not to tear it down. There's things like Lucy, right before Charlie Brown storms out of the pageant with his, you know, bad tree, says that, of course, Christmas is commercial. It's run by an Eastern syndicate. (laughs) Right. And I'm just like, wait, what? An Eastern crime syndicate? She just throws out this sudden conspiracy theory that, like, Christmas is entirely run by the Chinese mafia? Is that what she's saying? A far Eastern mafia, I'm assuming, which is certainly uh, racially, ethnically insensitive. It is not politically correct. And and some would even argue potentially racist and dangerous to even put that in a kid's show. I thought that was really bizarre. Um, In general, the cruelty that these kids show to Charlie Brown was really hard for me to watch as an adult and as a new father when Charlie Brown first goes to Linus and says, essentially, I'm feeling really depressed. Christmas doesn't have what it's meaning. And his response is essentially of all the Charlie Browns, you're the Charlie Brownist, which is to say you are actually a jerk for expressing these like true and deep emotions. And I'm like, wow, that I don't remember everyone being so mean. And Yes, the whole point of Peanuts is that Charlie Brown is emotionally not well and all of the other kids don't understand. And that is something that I think can and probably does happen to children suffering from mental illness, that other children don't understand it. But at the same time, I had completely and totally forgotten how depressed Charlie Brown is 
and how mean the other kids can be. I mean, Lucy also full out just exploits him. Yeah. Oh, entirely. Well, I'm I'm glad that you bring this up, though, because in 1965, it is kind of revolutionary that a, a Christmas special that is widely broadcast is addressing such uh, dark and deep topics as seasonal depression or mental illness writ large. Uh, and also, you know, I, I do think that looking back on this special and really reflecting on the attitudes therein, it's kind of a, a perfect expression of the postmodern human condition, isn't it? The postmodern, post-war liberal America. There is... Yeah, elaborate on that yeah, for me. Well, it expresses the tension between the commercialism of Christmas and the desire to have a sincere, authentic experience of the holiday. And I honestly think the critique of commercialism is the least interesting part of this special but that's primarily because I think it has been repackaged so many times that expressing the commercialism of Christmas has become a commercial commodity itself. And I'm just a little bored by that at this point in my life. But within the Charlie Brown Christmas special, we see a character who is disillusioned, who is a child who has been kind of cast out of his society, who has been uh, who has been ostracized for his inability to express the same kind of joy and holiday cheer as everyone else because he's disillusioned and because he's not supported by children, by adults. And the adults are not present in this special at all. And in Peanuts, they're primarily not present at all, except as a want-want voice in the background. But we see these kids experiencing the holiday by themselves, exploring the world by themselves. And all representing these different forms of what it was like to be part of the American consciousness in the post-war years. Charlie Brown feeling depressed, Lucy being this ambitious entrepreneurial figure. I think she is funny and I think she is cruel, but she's also kind of admirable in some ways. What she does with the psychology, like making Charlie Brown pay up front for her to just list a bunch of phobias is absolutely exploitation, but it is entrepreneurial. And it is like, oh, she she had a great idea to start a business as an eight-year-old or however old she is. So there is a really interesting tension that you see between the characters as they're exploring what it means to uh, celebrate Christmas, but also what it means to be an American at this time. I think those are some interesting meditations. I One thing... I disagree with, um, in just personal opinion, ahead, yeah. is the the commercialization and the theme of the commercialization of Christmas being the most disinteresting part. That's I, just personal for me. Yeah, yeah, I find that to be the part that holds up the most. At some point, I think, at least for my journey, in particular, my journey to Christmas through Christmas and my relationship to it, it can very much emphasize and reflect this search for meaning. When I was a boy, like many other people, I believed deeply in Santa Claus and the myth of Santa Claus. It is something that like ran very, very true to me, so much so that my parents eventually had to sit me down and tell me the truth, that there is no Santa Claus, that they deliver the presents. And that was my first actual philosophical awakening, where I realized that People can say a thing is true. You can believe a thing to be true. However, it can turn out to be false. And this is where I started questioning ideas, general assumptions, such as uh, just as a young boy growing up in the 80s, as a young white boy growing up in the 80s, things like patriotism. Should we just absolutely follow our country and believe everything they say? What if the people in power are saying something is true and it turns out it's not? questioning institutions like education. Can I trust my teachers? What if they don't have my best interest? And in faith-based organizations, if someone is telling me this is the fundamental truth of the universe, well, I believed that Santa Claus was real and that was wrong. What if you, what if your religious views are similar to those of Santa Claus? And although I was very young and I did not have the education or the philosophical vocabulary, what I was experiencing was my first existential crisis, my first search for meaning. In this, Charlie Brown is going through a similar journey. The commercialism is suffocating what he sees as a, a holiday that has no meaning. And very, very, and I think this is something we should meditate on as we look at Christmas, 
there's a reason why in Christmas mental health crises occur. There's a reason why suicides happen. There's a reason why people get the blues. There's a reason why road rage goes up. There's a reason why when you walk into a store and bump into a stranger, you feel like that stranger may actually physically attack you. The commercialism can sometimes suffocate any joy or goodness out of the holiday. And Charlie Brown, seeing all the plastic, seeing all the fake, seeing all the hollow symbolisms that ultimately have no meaning, rightfully, I think, asks, what is this about? I, why should I feel joy if this is about contests and toys and trinkets? And what what should this actually be? Why do we celebrate? Why is everyone pretending like this has more meaning when all it really is is a way to siphon money out of everyone's pockets? Something that gets echoed, so you call um, Lucy entrepreneurial. I would add on top of that, if we are thinking of archetypes and symbols, she is very much representing um, the capitalist, or if we want to use uh, Christian theology, if we want to use the Bible, she's very much representing the Pharisees. She is the person that is saying, I hold the knowledge, you need to pay me money for it, and then I will disperse it to you, and it's not going to make you feel better, and in fact, it's going to make you feel worse. And at the right, right before the climax of the movie, she's going to be like, oh yeah, this is all just an Asian gang scam. What did you think this was? You know, I told you to do this pageant because you paid me money, but not, it's not going to actually give you any, any meaning. In fact, what she is saying is Christmas is meaningless. We all know that. What are you, a fool? Get with the program and sell your soul or get out of here. And in that respect, I think that, that, that journey that Charlie Brown goes through reconciling the commercialism and the theological implications of Christmas mirrors my own reckon, you're trying to reconcile the existential crisis and the search for meaning and truth, which is ultimately what Charlie Brown is looking for anyway. He's looking for meaning. What is the truth? Is there a truth behind Christmas? Can there be a truth in Christmas? Or is this all just a big show that means nothing? And I think that is something that we all really do need to reconcile with and meditate. In the show, Linus suggests and Linus uh, urges Charlie Brown to turn to faith as an answer to that. And I do think that is a reasonable answer in a chaotic and, and crazy world if you assume that God is real, right? So if you assume that God is real and you're looking for the meaning in Christmas, boom, it is right there for you. If you don't have that assumption, as I don't, I don't know if God is real, I suspect God is not, but I don't know if God is real, it then can take you into lots of different philosophical areas, and the philosophy behind this I do think is fascinating and so nuanced and layered for a 1965 children's show. I think that's amazing. I just want to emphasize that, the idea that Christmas facilitates existential crises and philosophical inquiry for you personally, for Charlie Brown, and I think for a lot of us, people in the world and characters in Christmas specials. And at some point, just about everyone will have to reconcile with what are they doing in the world? Why are they here? What is their meaning? What is their purpose? And that journey we now call us modern philosophically inclined people existentialism we now call that an existential crisis, but it is absolutely, I think, essential and fairly universal where people, as they start to become aware of the world, question their place in it, question the meaning, question the purpose of everything they're doing. So yeah, it holds up to a degree. I think parts of it hold up better than others, but it's Charlie Brown Christmas and it has probably the best piano hook I've ever heard in a Christmas movie Maybe one of the best I've ever heard in any movie, period. I love it. Yeah, there is no wrong you can say about the, the soundtrack, for sure. Absolutely. And in, in the end, it's Charlie Brown's Christmas. We're all going to keep watching it. I mean, I have, a, I have a Snoopy ornament. We all love the peanuts. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so holds up. Yeah, yeah, yeah nah, eh. a little bit here, a little bit Let there. Let us know what you think. Absolutely. Let us uh, turn our eye to some analysis. Where would you like to begin? 
I think it would be fun. I, you know, I, I was excited to do this because it was a challenge for me because I, I did not know what I was going to be able to bring to Charlie Brown Christmas. It's like a 24-minute special. But I think we should start with some of the history of the holiday and how it infuses the special. What do you think? You mean we should figure out what is this Christmas thing all about? I think we should figure out what Christmas is all about. I mean, wouldn't it be great if there was someone here whose specialty and love and passion was history? That would really help. Do you have a friend you can phone? I, I don't, but I happen to be that person. You happen to have a history degree. I happen to, and so I've done, and I will be perfectly blunt with everyone, I've done a lot of surface level research. I didn't get to dig super deep, but the history of Christmas is freaking fascinating. I absolutely loved learning about it. So I want to kind of walk through some of the broader brushes of what is Christmas? Where did it come from? What is its history? How did we get to Christmas as we know it in 1965, which is very similar to Christmas in 2021, which is the Christmas of Charlie Brown. So it starts with ancient winter festivals. So there were a few forces, sociological, economic forces that kind of led to a, a winter holiday really being a thing. One is that ancient societies are mostly agrarian, so they're farmers. There are also shepherds. Not a lot to do in winter. You can't plant, you can't grow. So people, generally speaking, have a little more time on their hands, one. Two, farm animals are incredibly expensive in the ancient world and they need to be fed. What a lot of ancient societies would do instead of keeping all of their livestock alive during the winter, they would slaughter their livestock. And in pre-refrigeration societies, now you have a ton of fresh meat. What are you going to do with that fresh meat? You have to eat it. And for many of the, the poor, the people on the lowest social ladder of ancient societies, this would be the one time of year they'd actually get to eat meat. Secondly, if you want to get yourself a nice adult beverage, well, that starts with grain. Grain would then grow and then be harvested when? It'd be harvested in the fall, and then it would ferment. After it ferments, it turns into alcohol. But when does all of that alcohol start to get uncast? Right around the time of December. So you have a whole bunch of poor people without a job to do, excess amounts of meat that they typically don't have access to the rest of the year, and now barrels and barrels of alcoholic beverages to consume. Coupled with most ancient societies had rituals in which there was worship of the sun or deification of the sun. And ancient people were smart. They recognized the cycles and patterns of the world and they recognized when it was where days started to go from light to dark. And they marked those as the summer and winter solace. So right around the time of the winter solace, Peasants have food, poor ancient people have food, slaves have food that they normally wouldn't have, large amounts of alcohol, not a lot of jobs to be done, and important religious markers of ancient paganism, boom, you get several amazing ancient rituals. I'd like to highlight two ancient rituals uh, just to discuss, but there are plenty, and we don't have time to discuss them all, but these ones I thought were kind of apt to Christmas. The first is the ancient Scandinavian or ancient Norse ritual called Yule. And this is where ancient Scandinavians people would get the biggest log that they could find and they would light this log on fire. It would be the Yule log. In fact, the word Yule comes to us today where we say Yule tidings, etc. They would burn this Yule log and they would feast and party as long as this log was burning. And then once the log burnt out, that would end the feast. And this would happen right along the time of the winter solace, right around the time we commonly celebrate Christmas. Um, in Rome, there was also a similar festival called the Festival of Saturnalia. Saturnalia. Sat Saturnalia. Thank you for correcting that. That is to honor the Roman god Saturn, who is a god of uh, agriculture. Pardon me. And it was a massive winter celebration where slaves were free that day. And poor people were expected to go to rich people and rich people would give them food and wine and drink. And it was this huge month-long hedonistic party, very similar to how we think of Mardi, Mardi Gras here in New Orleans. And everybody would be treated as equals as a celebration of the return to the agricultural season. So 
the winter solace marks the return back to longer days, which means you can grow, which means the gods are blessing you, so everybody would celebrate. Now enter the, the era of Christianity. So Christianity becomes the dominant religion in the ancient Roman Empire, and as the dominant religion, it has its own festivals. Traditionally, in the ancient Roman Christian world, Easter is the most important holiday, as it is the day that Christ returned um, from death from crucifixion. So where did Christmas actually come from in its Christian identity? And it's really kind of hard to answer that. The predominant historical theory is Pope Julius I, around 350 AD, under the reign of Constantine, Constantine being the Roman emperor who formed the ancient Roman Catholic Church and decriminalized Christianity and oriented the Roman Empire to monotheism and Christianity, which would have long-term historical repercussions. According to most, it was Julius I who declared that December 25th was the day Christ was born. However, this is based on one source that was written in the ninth century of the Common Era, so written, you know, almost 600 years later, and most people don't really suspect that it's truthful, but people have just sort of gravitated to, oh, it was Julius I, he declared it on December 25th. So there is an air of mystery how December 25th became known as the day that Christ was born. Most think that's probably false that Julius did that, but we'll never, we may never really know unless new evidence comes about. It is also really questionable if that is when Jesus was born. After all, there are mentions of shepherds in the birth story of Christ in the Bible, and you don't do a lot of shepherding on December 25th in ancient Judea. So if there are shepherds there, it would lead people to believe it might be spring, summer, or fall, and not winter. However, these things we may never actually get a true answer for. What did happen, what we do know, is that December 25th was marked as the day that Christ was born. That was generally accepted, still is generally accepted. And Christmas started being celebrated. However, it was never the most important Christian holiday in the ancient world. That belonged to Easter. Easter was the big holiday. That was the one that people celebrated. And Christmas had some traditions, and it absorbed some of the pagan identities of these other festivals, such as the Yuletide Log, uh, the Festival of Sol Invictus is another one that was a Roman holiday. Um, things like Christmas trees have some pagan roots to them. But largely speaking, Easter was the main most important holiday. So how did Christmas become the holiday that it is today? Well, things will get worse for Christmas before it gets better. In the 1600s, as the medieval era is coming to an end, as lay literacy, so the common person could read, people started reading the Bible, they started really questioning assumptions and theological assumptions. And there was a political movement called Puritanism that was an offshoot of Protestantism that argued that if there's no biblical pretext for any Christian faith, worship, etc., it should not be a part of the faith. And sadly, that meant Christmas. Christmas is not mentioned in the Bible, hence Christmas is itself a sin and should not be celebrated if you are a Puritan. A lot of these traditions took hold, and as we go to the colonization of North America by Europeans, by the Puritans, they came over and Christmas was not being celebrated whatsoever and Christmas starts falling really out of favor. In particular, in Western Europe and in North America, there's still celebrations in Central Europe, and in particular in Germany, which will have a, a huge impact on the history of the Christmas tree. So Christmas is not much celebrated, it's not the most important holiday, and some are even arguing it is a it shouldn't be celebrated whatsoever and refuse to celebrate it. It gets even worse for Christmas in America as Christmas starts making a comeback as a holiday in the 18th century, in the era of the American Revolution in England. As America breaks away and forms its own country, it wants to culturally separate itself from England, so it is further more antagonistic towards Christmas. 
because Christmas is getting more popular over there in England and Britain and America's just like everything British is bad. We're going to celebrate Christmas even less. So there is the Puritanism that says Christmas is bad. Now there's an American culture that says we're distinct from the English. We're not Englishmen. We're Americans now. They like this Christmas thing. We're going to celebrate it even less. Now flash forward to the 19th century in America. The 19th century or the 1800s, if you're counting, and hopefully you are. In this era is a huge turmoil point of America. There's economic downturn. We're on the verge of civil war. And there are several social unrests happening. In particular, there are um, sort of revolts against the rich people happening in New York, which would, and this is happening during December, very important to note, that during December in the early 19th century, people start going after rich people in New York and they start killing them with mob violence. This led to some of the first police forces in American history being formed, by the way. Interesting historical It antidote. was to protect rich people? It was to stop mob violence, yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, you can't have people going around no, murdering each really other. No, you can't really eat the rich. It's fine. Yeah, so, yes, so this formation, this starts some of the first police forces in America are the results of these unrests and these mob killings. And in it, there was a very popular writer named Washington Irving in the early 19th century who wrote a book called The Sketchbook of Joffrey Crannon Gent. And I might be saying that name wrong, but anyway, it is a story about an English manor in which during the Christmas holiday, invites a bunch of people from different social classes to all come in and eat and dine as equals. Now, Washington Irving was such a popular writer that anything he wrote sold in mass, mass quantities. This was an incredibly popular book, and it implanted the idea that Christmas is a time of going, being with your family, having peace on earth, a celebration across social and economic ties, and a time of celebration with the family. In essence, it invents the myth of American Christmas coming from this. The way we celebrate it now is really rooted in that, that story. That's how popular it was. So people start celebrating Christmas much the way we do now. Small groups of people with just close friends and family, doing good works, charitable works, getting together, having a feast, giving of presents and gifts, all of this come out of that era and that time. Now, flash forward a few more decades to the 1950s. This is the post-World War II economic boom, and something really revolutionary happens in American consumerism. This is the era of the department store. Department stores become a thing. These mammoth stores selling lots of different products that people can go to to buy things. You couple that with new technologies in mass media, namely radio and the advent of television, and you now have a season in which you have stores selling via commercials the idea of giving presents to people during Christmas. And this is where the commercialism of Christmas really starts to take hold. This is where the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade comes. This is where Christmas movies come. This is where Christmas commercials come. This is where things like the Charlie Brown Christmas special come out of. And this is what gives us commercialism in Christmas. So to draw the long line from ancient winter festivals with ancient poor people, we then have a slowdown of these under the era of Christianity, but we have some Christmas traditions continuing. And then we have the advent of the colonization of America and Puritanism, which says that Christmas is bad until we have the 19th century in which during economic rest, uh, economic unrest and you know social violence, we create around an author a myth of Christmas as something that people will celebrate with their families and that different people at different economic status will find peace. And then we have that spearheaded through television, radio, and the advent of department store selling advertisements on these medias where we get the modern secular commercialization of Christmas that we know it today. Wow. Okay. Big whirlwind overview of thousands of years of history. And I really appreciate it. And 
just like your briefest of brief recaps, you're able to distill so much information into a very short amount of time. But there are a couple of themes that I just want to pick out that I thought were really fascinating about what you just brought. First, the idea that these midwinter festivals and then later Christmas were these equalizing forces, were democratizing in a way where poor people and rich people would sometimes share the same table or would be able to partake in the same feasts. This idea that slaves were free at Christmas time or at Saturnalia or Yule, that uh, suddenly there was a sense of freedom and equality between all people and that that is carried through to this story by Washington Irving about people from all walks of life sharing the same table. I think that is really interesting. I also love that you clued into this idea that modern Christmas really crystallized in the 19th century, just like so many elements of the modern world. And a lot of that is a result of that being the industrial era, where we start mechanizing the way that we go about our lives and individual identity and childhood all become actual things that they were not before because some of our hands are freed up by machines. And also tied in with that, the idea that modern Christmas has been laid out for us by literature, by texts. So Washington Irving in this one case, but also Clement Clark Moore in Twas the Night Before Christmas, defines Christmas for Americans in a way in the same century. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol defines Christmas in the same century and through storytelling. So yes, literature in the 19th century, but once we get to the 20th century, new forms of media will go on to define how Christmas is celebrated. So by that token, watching something like Charlie Brown Christmas react against the the movements of the 1950s toward the department store, toward the commercialization of Christmas. And I know I said that that was the least interesting part of it to me at the beginning of this, but that's just because I've seen it so many times. It actually feels like a really brave and natural outgrowth of that, you know, several thousand year history that led into what Christmas is in the 1960s. Also, the peanuts are boomers. Do you ever reflect on that? The peanuts are baby boomers. It's just fascinating to me. Lucy, of course, makes a lot of sense as a boomer. Until you said that, no, that had not occurred to me that they are baby <laughs> boomers at all. Because to me, they're cartoons. You know, they're frozen. Yeah, they're, they will they always would, be 10 years old. Or... They would grow up and become baby boomers and, and ruin democracy in the world. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Okay, boomer. I, I kid boomers who are listening. We love you all. We love you very, very much. Stop messing up democracy. No, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I completely hear where you're coming. And I think one of the ways we now express our Christmasness. We now celebrate and enjoy Christmas. We now celebrate it in many ways, but especially if we celebrate it secularly, so we celebrate it in a non-theological or religious context, it's through the celebration of Christmas media. It's yeah. through the celebration of Christmas music. It's through the celebration of Christmas TV, through the celebration, through the Macy's Day Parade, which we watch on TV, and then the Christmas movie, the Christmas special. We all have our list of our favorite Christmas movies. We all will debate, does this movie qualify as a Christmas movie or not? And at the end of the day, Christmas has become very media-centered and very much about the consumption of content and ritualizing that content. So I celebrate this Christmas thing ritualistically, whether that's Die Hard or It's a Christmas Story and everything in between, when you do it at Christmas, you do it every single year. And that is something that I think is unique about our relationship to media and unique about our, our era and time that we have this mass media and that we all sit there and say, here's my favorite Christmas thing, my favorite Christmas movie or song, and every year I listen to it. Every year we listen to, Laurel and I, pretty much the same Christmas music and it never gets old and we still love it. Every year, I want to watch It's a Wonderful Life. That's my Christmas movie. And I think that, to me, is one thing that the Charlie Brown Christmas special, if that is part of your Christmas ritual, it's going to be the most important Christmas media, and it's going to define and shape and, and give you guidance when you ask yourself, what is Christmas all about? You're going to go back to the media. And what's interesting about this research that I did is that started in the early 1800s. 
That is such a good point, and I just want to add one more dimension to it, which is that Charlie Brown Christmas was created in 1965, and it aired on CBS, and every year since then, it has aired on network television so that everyone can watch it until 2020 when it was bought by Apple so that it could be streamed on Apple TV+. And there was such an uproar about it being suddenly only contained on an elite streaming service that you would have to pay extra for and that only some people had access to that they ended up airing it on TV anyway. So it's not only ritual, uh, but even in this era of content on demand and being able to get what you want, where you want it on your service at what time you want it, people still demanded to have an appointment with Charlie Brown at seven o'clock or prime time on network television. So they didn't want to stream it, you know, whenever they wanted to watch it at the same time, everyone else in America was watching it. So just another thing to add to that. Fascinating, fascinating point. So what is Christmas all about? It depends when you lived and it depends on your relationship to media and to, I would also say to your family, to your religion, your faith, whatever that is. But what is it all about? Man, it has a long history. And when I say that I, scratch the surface. Yeah. I didn't, I literally scratched the surface on the history of Christmas because I mean, there have been, there've been winter festivals since the ancient Egyptians. Well, and I would recommend listeners go back and listen to some of our other Christmas specials because we talk in a little bit more detail about, you know, Christmas crystallizing in the 19th century or the Puritans or, uh, you know, other, deeper aspects of the pagan winter festivals. And this was a really beautiful way to tie them all together into one long arc of the history of Christmas. I would love if it's okay with you to kind of take this seed from Christmas media and ritual storytelling as a part of the Christmas uh, celebration into another aspect of history. If, if that's okay. I, I like history. Yeah. So uh, this is always exciting for me when I get to talk about a very special subject, which is the history of theater. Uh, and the kids, the Peanuts in Charlie Brown Christmas are putting on a play. So of course I had to take that and kind of run with it. And I'd love to talk a little bit about the history of the Christmas pageant or the nativity play. So nativity plays uh, are often enacted in schools or churches at Christmas time. I'm sure you have seen one or performed in one. They're typically performed by children. And the first nativity play is usually attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and that's in the 13th century. He performed a midnight Christmas Eve mass in 1223 right in front of a live nativity scene. And these live nativity scenes are common. They're sometimes called cribs or crushes. And they're a widespread tradition across cultures. They sometimes even feature live animals, which I can't imagine what that must smell like. But the tradition of the Christmas pageant really solidifies and formalizes in the advent of the medieval mystery play. And these are key to the development of modern theater. We know that drama comes to us from ancient Greece, but after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, theater mostly disappears from Western Europe. It's frowned upon by the church, which views theatrical activity as heretical, even dangerous given its pagan roots. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense because the ancient Roman theater was known for mocking and even torturing early Christians during performance. So why would you let that kind of thing continue once you gain power? There are still roving bands of mimes that perform around the countryside, but there's really not much writing or evidence about it. So we don't know very much. And there is probably still theater in the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantine theater, but again, we just don't know that much about it. Now, between the 5th and the 10th century, you do see a tradition emerge known as liturgical drama. And these are formal efforts by the church to start dramatizing biblical events to breathe life into the important days on the Christian calendar. So while theater was banned by Christianity to begin with, it's the Catholics, it's the church who actually start to resurrect it. One of the first and most important liturgical dramas is known as the Quem Quiritis, or the Whom Do You Seek? And it's based on just four lines from the medieval Easter liturgy. Literally, it's four lines that are sung between choruses, uh, between an angel and a group of women who are looking for the crucified Jesus. They ask where he is, and the angels say, he is not here, he is risen, just as he foretold, go announce that he has risen from the sepulcher. That's it. Those lines, that exchange with very minimal stage direction 
is responsible for theater re-emerging in the West, and it's the basis of all liturgical drama and what will later become the mystery play. And there's no special costuming, nobody's really acting, they're just pantomiming, they're just going through the motions to give it a little bit more than just reading it from a book. Liturgical drama would later be expanded and be embellished with action and dialogue, and then they would move it throughout the church. So it wouldn't just be at the altar. They would be performed within what are called mansions throughout the church that are decorated to look like sets. So it starts to really become this bombastic tradition and then later move out of the church and into public spaces. Then by 1210, Pope Innocent III issues an edict to ban the clergy from performing on public stages. So this thing that has been held by the church for several centuries now moves into someone else's hands. And it's taken over mostly by craft guilds who start to build theater based on biblical stories, but they're doing it in a public place and with regular people instead of priests and clergy people. They also start being performed in the vernacular languages, so not just Latin, but English and French. And it spreads across Europe, taking the form of the mystery play. It's called a mystery play because it refers to both the sort of mysteries of God, the religious mysteries, but also mystery was another word for a craft or a trade. And these were taken on by different trade guilds. So they weren't secrets. Right. Yeah. They weren't whodunits. <laughs> um, the mystery play grows so popular and so ambitious that larger and larger stages are needed to accommodate it. And they start to build what's known as the pageant wagon. And the word pageant comes from an archaic word, pagin or pagin, P-A-G-Y-N, which is literally meant to refer to the wagon itself, but it grows to contain this connotation of a procession, how we consider pageants today. And these, uh, these pageant wagons would either move from place to place and perform, or people might move to the wagons, and there might be a... a a group of wagons that each portrayed different scenes within the Bible. Again, we don't have a ton of sources that tell us everything about it. We just know that they existed. And they became these really lavish, big festivals that would last days and days on end. And you could move throughout and see different biblical scenes portrayed. So they start to take on the form of probably what ancient Greek and Roman theater looked like. Big, long-lasting, days-long religious festivals that depict important and sacred events. Then, as it grows, these plays start to portray some events that are a little bit more secular. They start to show things that are more like day-to-day -day life for English people in the country or whatever Western European country that you're in. They still retain some of that religious messaging, but they're also trying to appeal to the common folk. And so there's one that I really want to pull out, one really popular and well-preserved mystery play that we still have today that's known as the Second Shepherd's Play. And it's written by an anonymous playwright who we know only as the Wakefield Master. It's written in the 15th century. This play concerns three shepherds who are being swindled out of one of their sheep by a conniving thief it turns into a big, bizarre farce with lots of jokes about eating babies and uh, drunk pregnant women. It's very ridiculous. And this whole comedic play kind of plays out, and it looks a lot like what it's like to be a shepherd in medieval England rather than what it's like to be a shepherd in ancient Judea, which is what it's trying to portray. So it appeals to all of the people in the audience who are like, yeah, the weather is terrible yeah, my pregnant wife is drunk, and it's silly. And then at the end, after this whole farce wraps up, the shepherds go home and are greeted by an angel who says, hey guys, Christ is born, the king of the Jews, head down to Bethlehem and bring him some gifts. And it's just this little tacked-on message at the end where the angel shows up and does the Gospel of Luke and tells these shepherds to go and bow before the Christ child. So a very ridiculous play that is totally secular and just people having fun appealing to the audience suddenly becomes this biblical story and part of a very important cycle and part of the Christmas story. It also happens to be exactly the way that Linus tells 
Charlie Brown what Christmas is all about after all of the ridiculous farce of what's been happening on the stage during the Christmas pageant rehearsals. So I love to kind of bring that in to talk about the history of theater and how uh, it is inextricably tied to the history of the church and the history of Christmas, but also that we still have this well-preserved masterpiece of the mystery play that happens to be the same story that Linus is telling to Charlie Brown. It just kind of reminds me that there is this relationship between Christmas and theater and that they both sort of ebb and flow in who they belong to. They start out as these ancient pagan festivals. At least the tradition of Christmas and the tradition of theater that we have today can be traced back to ancient Greece and Rome. And then they are, they disappear. They're taken hold of by the church. They're resurrected by the church somehow. And then they're given back to the masses. And there's this constant ebb and flow of who they belong to and who has power over them. But at the end of the day, they become that equalizing force. They become a large table that hopefully everyone can sit at and it's not something that's elite. They move from being religious to being secular to being religious to being secular again. I love that. That's really, really fascinating. You know, another thing I'd like to add on top of that is it's very common for a lot of people who are trying to find their way in the world to put their toe into the arts. And what Lucy suggests to Charlie Brown is that, you know, get involved, do something Christmassy and you'll feel more Christmas-like. Hey, maybe you should direct this play. It is also very common for people who dip their toe into their art, arts and really try to find their way through the, the creation and dissemination of art to walk away feeling really freaking alienated by that process and being like, this did not find the truth I was looking for. This did not give me the satisfaction that I needed. I can think of myself as a musician and my attempts to try to become a musician being like, yeah, this is just not for me. This is a terrible way to live your life. And I do not want to be a, a professional musician whatsoever. It's probably, that would probably end up destroying me. I much rather have a regular normal life. I think it's interesting how Charlie Brown has a similar sort of journey as he tries to direct this pageant and as he tries to craft an artistic vision that'll help him understand the true meaning of Christmas. Lo and behold, all it was really there all along. All he needed was you know, a little help from his friends to quote a Ringo Starr Beatles song. Yeah, what he's really looking for is a spark of authenticity, right? He's looking for some sincerity and he's not finding that in the relationship that most of the other kids have to Christmas. So when I go back and watch this as someone who's not a Christian and who was kind of weirded out by the Gospel of Luke reading the first time I watched it, I like to think of it not as Christmas is all about, you know, the birth of Jesus, but Christmas is all about maybe a quiet reflection on our past year and some hope for the future. Uh, maybe Christmas is all about taking a minute and recognizing that we have something good in front of us. And I, I just love thinking of how the relationship to theater, which is a form of media, so how the relationship to media, again, goes through transformations and processes depending upon who's in power, what the, the view is on how to interact in the world, what the, the dominant moral view is, and what the, the dominant theological view is, and how that it goes from, you know, being these pagan religious festivals to completely being banned, and then being these Christian religious festivals, and how slowly that ekes itself back into, if you know, for this, the regular people, and how that leads to a theatrical tradition that continues on today, and we still do these Christmas pageants. They are still very popular all over the country. Yeah, because people have always desired to come together and celebrate by telling stories or by sharing stories. And even when you try to stamp it out, you cannot stop it from being reborn. And Christmas is so much about what rituals are you keeping? What rituals are you celebrating? How do you pass those rituals on? And they're often our relationship to some form of media, even if it is a nativity play to Charlie Brown Christmas. I think that is fascinating. Um, one other thing I kind of want to talk about today, if you are okay with a segue. Absolutely. Um, this will not be a hu huge segment, but did a little bit of research. And it's about the Christmas tree, which is a really important symbol, I think, in the Charlie Brown. 
it ends up being the thing that ultimately turns all of the kids away from Charlie Brown, as well as the thing that really reconnects Charlie Brown and the other kids to the spirit of Christmas. It just made me thinking, you know, what's the deal with Christmas trees? Where do those really come from? And how do they relate to the histories and mythologies that we've been discussing um, to date? And it it's pretty fascinating. So as far back as ancient Egypt goes, people during the December month would take green plants and bring them into their house and a, a evergreen plant. So it has to be a plant that does not have leaves that then turn brown and then fall off. And the idea being there, it is about the rebirth of the sun. One of the predominant views of winter in ancient religion and ancient paganism is that the sun is sick and that's why the sun cannot be there as strong as the sun is during summer. So the sun needs to rest and get better. The evergreen being a symbol of healing the sun because it never loses its leaves. It never loses its connection to the sun. So these plants are thought to have a deep connection to the actual sun so that you bring them into your home. This is a tradition that continues and passes down and is in the Christmas tree as we know it comes from um, Germany in particular in the 1600s. Oh, Tannenbaum. The Germans were very big on taking the Christmas tree in and in decorating it during this time of year. It is a largely ancient Germanic culture. While the 1600s is significant as a date for the Christmas tree is because that's when the Germans started immigrating to America and they brought with them the Christmas tree. But as we know from our previous discussion, the Puritans were like, Christmas is bad. They weren't celebrating it. They're like, who are these Germans and why do they have a tree in their house? As Christmas starts to get more and more celebrated, as it starts to get more popular, at the end of the 19th century, so at the end of the 1800s, there was a little-known queen in England named Victoria. You may have heard of her. They apparently named an era after her, the Victorian era. (laughs) Victoria was a hugely popular figure, not just in England, but a popular figure globally. Everybody loved Queen Victoria, and Queen Victoria was married to a German prince, Albert. Yes, she was. So he was a German, and so he brought to the royal family the tradition of the Christmas tree. And in 1846, there was a very popular illustration. So someone drew a picture of Queen Victoria, Prince Albert, and their family with a Christmas tree. And that sold like hotcakes And that was it. The Christmas tree got adopted first in England, and then it got adopted everywhere in America. So because Queen Victoria married a German prince, and he brought the Christmas tree to the royal family, and this illustrator drew this really beautiful picture of them. It's it's like a cartoon, but it's really cool with the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree then became a widely adopted Christmas symbol. Oh, one other quick fun antidote Don't know if it's historically accurate or not, but why do we put lights in Christmas trees? The story goes that Martin Luther, you may have heard of him, he broke from the Catholic Church, was walking home and on a winter night and saw all the pine trees and he saw all of the stars glowing behind them, thought that it was beautiful. So on his Christmas tree, he put candles in it to try to replicate that, which was the putting of lights. Now, when Queen Victoria and Prince Albert had this, they had put candles in the tree so that there were lights in the tree. So that is why the tree gets lighted, according to myth. No one knows if that's 100% historically accurate, but this stuff, all of these rituals and traditions are where folklore, history, myth, theology, where they all overlap into one. Victoria and Albert are so fascinating and so influential because their wedding also is one of the like key elements in why like women wear white in weddings today. Like most of their wedding traditions have been sort of sublimated by popular culture and popular wedding culture too. So the two of them and the traditions that they melded just as individuals have such a far reach over contemporary tradition. And again, that's the 19th century. So much of the modern world just taking form and taking shape in that century. Absolutely. Super influential. And I thought that was really cool because what if 
Queen Victoria married a, a Danish Exactly, yeah. We might not have Christmas trees. What would our world look like? That's <laughs> We'd amazing. We'd have Christmas with no tree, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think the, the idea of a family gathered around a tree, celebrating each other, doing it quietly, doing it peacefully, sort of emblematic of the, the myth of trying to create a Christmas that would ease social tension, that would bring some harmony, that was the focus of trying to create Christmas in America in particular in the 19th century. So I think it all sort of crystallizes that it is the tree that ultimately gets Charlie Brown to come around when he realizes that he actually has a good tree, when he realizes the meaning of Christmas can be made. It doesn't have to be given to you because it's worth noting that even when Linus quotes Luke, that does not heal Charlie Brown's heart. He still has a crisis on his hand and it isn't until the other kids come together, they make the tree beautiful, and they all carol together that Charlie Brown finds the true meaning of Christmas. And that ritual of the tree is super important, and we all have it. We have our tree ritual, as I'm sure every Midnight Myth listener who celebrates Christmas has some sort of tree ritual or tradition that they honor and they keep. And it doesn't really feel quite like Christmas in your home until you get that tree up. And Charlie Brown, his moment where he really realizes the meaning of Christmas, he sees a star shining in the austere black sky, and he hears Linus in his mind saying the Luke passage, but it's really about seeing that one glimmer of light and then having the the group of peanuts come together and become his family. They come together and they sing. They share in this piece of performance ritual. They nourish something together, a tree. They bring it new life. The act of nourishment then nourishes Charlie Brown. And they come together as a little family. And, you know, I'll just take this last kind of moment to say, yes, most of us hope to celebrate Christmas with our family, um, whether those are blood or chosen family. But the idea of being able to build a chosen family, I think, is very important for a lot of people around this time of year. So I think it's beautiful that Charlie Brown is able to find community with these people who have been kind of horrible to him and that see the error of their ways, that recognize the true charity of Christmas time and the spirit of Christmas is about getting over your differences and coming to share a feast at the same table. For behold, I bring unto you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Merry Christmas from the Midnight Myth to you, and until next time, Merry Christmas!